This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Hanam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have an incredible uh, show today. We have a lot of very important stories that we're going to be covering. A team of Israeli contractors who have manipulated more than 30 elections around the world have been exposed in a big expose, which has not made it to the mainstream media for any intents and purposes here in the United States. But this is a huge story about the Israeli surveillance uh, industrial complex, basically undermining democracies throughout the world. We're going to be talking a bit about that. Also, over the weekend, an Israeli delegation was expelled from the African Union summit in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. Big story. The, you know, the, the apartheid regime was kind of apoplectic. They were up in arms that they were excluded. Very big story. And uh, actually, within the last 24 hours, Jamal, the Israeli military has bombed uh, a building in Damascus, killing at least 10 people. And, uh, and you know, we need to be covering that because they're upping the ante. But before we get to all of that, we're going to be watching a really great interview you did with Dr. James Cavallaro. This was... Um, the Biden administration uh, uh, was someone who was nominated for the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. And then at the last minute, surprise, surprise, his nomination was withdrawn by the Biden administration because he dared to tweet and criticize the apartheid regime of Israel. Now, this is a big story, Jamal, because this is this is not just an academic This is not just your typical story that we've been reporting on about how pro-Israel groups attack free speech rights uh, all over the uh, United States. This was a nominee for a very high-level position in the Biden administration, and he committed the crime of criticizing the apartheid regime like Amnesty did, like Human Rights Watch did, like Israeli critics have done. He, he didn't say anything different than these organizations. Nothing, nothing. And, and I just have to add something. This wasn't just an ordinary nomination. No, he it's was a big one. He was vetted for months. Uh, and, and according to the State Department, basically he was selected because he's the most qualified for that position. Full stop. Full stop, the most qualified. If you look at his CV, Jamal, his record is really amazing and impeccable. And as you said, fully vetted by the State Department, it's only when the pro-apartheid lobbying groups got wind of this that they freaked out. But, you know, let's let's take a look at the uh, really great interview you did with him. In a stunning Valentine's Day about face, the State Department withdrew the Biden administration's nomination of James Cavallaro to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. Although recognizing Cavallaro as a leading scholar and practitioner of international law, it cited disparaging tweets Cavallaro had made about Israel as sufficient grounds for reversing its decision. The comments concerned Israel's human rights violations and apartheid practices towards the indigenous Palestinians, disparaging perhaps, but substantiated and accurate. Joining us on Arab Talk this week is James Cavallaro. He's the co-founder and executive director of the University Network for Human Rights. He teaches courses on human rights law and practice at Wesleyan University, 
Yale Law School, and UCLA Law School. In 2013, Mr. Cavallaro was elected to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights and served as its president from 2016 to 2017. Welcome to Arab Talk, uh, James. Thank you, Jamal. It's, it's very good to be with you. So let me begin, you know, by you giving us a, or, or setting the context of uh, your nomination by the Biden administration to serve on the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights and the stunning withdrawal of it uh, on, on February 14th. So I would start with my service on the commission that you mentioned already from 2014 to 2017, which was the result of the nomination by the Obama-Biden administration. I'd been working in human rights with a focus on Latin America for over three decades, and my nomination was the result of a process where candidates were invited to apply from uh, you know, universities and other spaces, and there was a review and an assessment, and the State Department made the decision that based on my experience with the Inter-American Commission, my work in academia, my work in human rights practice, my writings and, and, and textbook on the Inter-American system, et cetera, that I would be the best candidate. And they nominated me on Friday. That's, that's the first step. On Monday, a, a fringe media outlet contacted me after having gone through my tweets, crawling my tweets, and scouring my, my, my Twitter timeline, they found tweets that were critical of the Israeli governmental practices in Israel and Palestine, which constitute apartheid. And they found tweets where I criticized the role of money and in particular the influence that APAC has on many candidates and in particular Hakeem Jeffries, who they to whom they provide funding. And then I believe, and an article that I commented on in, in the tweet in The Guardian documents how Hakeem Jeffries has worked to stop any conditionality on human rights grounds being attached to the $4 billion a year in support that the United States provides to the Israeli government. So don't use this money to demolish homes. Don't use this money to incarcerate people in the occupied territory in a system of military justice, etc. Even that is too much for Hakeem Jeffries, and coincidentally, his largest single donor is a, a political action committee whose purpose is to promote the interests of Israel. I, those were, the, I think, the tweets that they were concerned about. There's an article published in this rather small outlet, <clears throat> on Monday afternoon, and it causes concern within state, within the State Department. By Tuesday morning, within a matter of hours, Valentine's Day, as you noted, thank you, I received a, a, a WhatsApp message from state, please call, I call the person I'm working with, and he tells me that there's been a lot of fallout about, about this within state, uh, involving uh, the special envoy on anti-Semitism, and others, and that the ambassador is going to call me, but the ambassador is very likely to pull my nomination, withdraw my nomination. Shortly thereafter, the ambassador calls. I speak with him. He tells me, I'm so sorry. This is political. It's, it's, not, it's not you. It's political. And uh, 
you know, I walked through the issues with him. In particular, my characterization of the situation in Israel and Palestine as apartheid. Um, excuse me. And there, I mentioned, look, I've been to Israel and Palestine. I've been to, I've been to Area C. I've been to Ramallah. I've been to, you know, I've, I've done documentation. It's, it's, it's. These are my views, but these are the views of Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, the leading Israeli human rights organization, B'Tselem, Al Haq, uh, the United Nations Special Rapporteur for this area, the Harvard Law School Human Rights Program, etc. This is I'm on firm ground here. Yeah, I know, I know, but it's political, etc. Long story short, that's the decision they make. Of, of a few hours later, there's a piece that comes out in the Associated Press that says this is because of Cavallaro's views on Israel. And then Ned Price, the spokesperson for the State Department, in his daily press briefing, in response to questions about this, says, and this is quite important, that my views, my views, don't align with the State Department views on uh, uh, right on, on these issues. That's essential. Why? Because I was not nominated to be a representative of the State Department. I was nominated to be an independent expert on a human rights body in the Western Hemisphere. And, and it's it, there's more, Jamal, which is, this is getting into the details, but if you permit me, I, I'd like to show this. Within the Inter-American Commission, there is an important rule which prevents nationals. So you remember there are seven members of the Inter-American Commission, and they're nationals of different states in the Western Hemisphere. Brazil, Mexico, Colombia, the United States, etc. There's an internal rule that prohibits nationals from engaging in decisions or speaking about human rights issues in their own countries. And the goal of this is, is, is interesting. The goal is to keep states from putting friendly commissioners on the commission and then those commissioners being able to protect their own states. But I told state, which is my position, I apply this rule, I follow the rules of the of the commission, so I would not comment on the United States, I would not weigh in on the United States, and I will even, I told them before they, they nominated me, I would even apply this as a nominee before election. Months before. Months before election, and months before I would assume the post. So that here's what's happened here, just to boil it down. Accepting and uh, parroting the U.S. position on what's happening in Israel and Palestine, which is an outlier, which is not consistent with what Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, and all the other leading groups say about this. Fidelity, loyalty to that position is now, in effect, a requirement, not only to be a representative of the United States, but to be an independent expert. So that now the norm is, the United States apparently will only nominate candidates to the Inter-American Commission who support Israeli apartheid practices in, in Palestine and are indifferent to the oppression of the Palestinian people. That's that's the new coin for an independent expert in another hemisphere. It's quite remarkable how this policy, this unfortunate policy that's out of line with what experts say about what's happening on the ground to Palestinians, how it is unfortunately arriving policy in areas very different, and, and I'm sorry, very distant from Israel and Palestine. Well, I mean, I, I want to focus on this a little bit, but 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 first, I want to go back to your, you know, you have an impressive career, you know, impressive breadth 
dedicated to human rights uh you know going back you know you've you've uh, you previously was elected to the same commission and served four years from 2014 to 2017 okay. the final year of which you were president isn't that right yeah that's correct and and again part of this is and, and uh, this is not about self-promotion it's about understanding what happened i've been working in human rights for three plus decades i i ran human rights organizations and and i worked with human rights in chile and brazil for for 15 years i ran the human rights clinic and was a professor at harvard law school and ran the human rights clinic and was a professor at stanford law school i've written scores of reports articles on human rights issues in the americas i i've written also the leading textbook in english i'm the lead author on the inter-american system i served on the commission the State Department itself assessed candidates. They had candidates, many candidates, very qualified. They decided I was the most qualified. So I won't say what I think of me. That's what they assessed. That unfortunately doesn't matter when someone diverges from the official position on Israel or Palestine. Well, well that's why I wanted to, 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 to clarify that you are super qualified with what I would describe it. And, and, and again... Uh, your focus of expertise in human rights laws and justice specifically within the americans uh, i mean i mean i mean this 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 uh, appointment has nothing to do with the middle east right it has exactly. it, it, it has nothing to do and and the the, the criticism or the tweets uh, that you posted israel has met the definition of apartheid and its human rights violations against palestinians administrative detention, house demolitions are well documented by multiple well-respected human rights organizations, including some Israeli ones. You know, we're not talking about just Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International. So my question is, why does Israel get a pass when no other country does? Well, it's it's an excellent question. And when you talk about meaning the, the definition, there is an international legal definition when one ethnic group, one uh, population seeks to dominate another population by particular acts. And you cited some of the, the, the acts, the, the massive settlement, the land seizures, the demolitions, the, the denial of building permits, the uh, fact that folks in the occupied territory cannot vote, the restriction on movement, uh, not to mention uh, violence that, that, and, and, and killings. Uh, obviously, there's, there's some violence as well that uh, Palestinians may, may may cause to the occupying forces, but there are occupying forces that killed you know, over 100 people last year. All of that together constitute the acts pursuant to a policy of domination by one ethnic group over another. By, and that's a matter of international law. And who has assessed that are all the groups that you've mentioned before, including Batal, including the leading human rights organization in Israel. Why does Israel get a free pass? Well, that's really, Jamal, you asked it, that's the million dollar question. Because from a human rights perspective, every country is held to the same standards. There is an internationally accepted decision, uh, definition of apartheid. It comes from the case of South Africa, but it is now a matter of international law. There are definitions. The definition of apartheid is Domination of one one people, one ethnic group over another. 
with particular acts. It's exactly what is it's textbook, what is happening in Israel and Palestine. There are two different classes of citizens, both within Israel proper and within the occupied territory. Palestinians do not have the same rights as Israelis, as Israeli Jews, by a significant margin. And it has been documented over and over. All I did, and I did this not as a commissioner, I did this after I left the commission, and while I'm a private citizen, before I was considered to be commissioner again, all I did was in my tweets to amplify the statements and documentation others about uh, what's happening in Israeli policies regarding Palestinians, the oppression of the Palestinian people. Let me just say this, if I could, Jamal. Uh, my expertise is in the Americas. It's where I've worked mostly for, for uh, nearly four decades, and that's why State Department nominated me. But I have also, because I ran international clinics at Harvard and Stanford, I've done human rights work in other parts of the world, in, right. in Indonesia, in India, in Bangladesh, in, uh, in Nigeria, in South Africa, in Ukraine. And I've documented conditions in those countries as well, and also in Palestine and Israel. And at a personal level, and I encourage people who have not been and who doubt that this is the case, if, if, you, if a U.S. citizen and most or U.S. national folks from Europe or people who have passports that are accepted to enter Tel Aviv, enter the experience of entering Tel Aviv, in my case, as a U.S. national law professor from Stanford at the time, that's one experience. Then I cross over into the territory, the occupied territory, to work with colleagues in Palestine. And then it's, you can't be on this road. You're stopped at a checkpoint here. You're stopped at a checkpoint there. Uh, the access to water is limited. Uh, building permits are denied. Uh, martial law and military law is applied. And it's, you see this, and it's, it's impossible, literally, if you have your eyes open and you're a sentient person, to not feel the radical difference in treatment between these two classes of people, which again is at the core of what apartheid is. Just to get to tie that into your question, why do, why would Israel get a free pass? They shouldn't. They should not get a free pass. No. And by the way, just to be clear, neither should the, the Palestinian Authority get a free pass. Neither should the Egyptian government, the Lebanese government, the government of Turkey, the government of France, the government of Belgium, the government of the United States, Mexico, and on and on. That's what human rights is. There are standards that are universal. They apply across the globe, and they're about standing on the side of the victims and not on the side of the powerful states. I mean, actually, that's, that's my next question was because uh, I would like to clarify that the mandate of the Inter-American Commission, and I'm quoting here, there shall be an Inter-American Commission on Human Rights whose principal function shall be to promote the observance and protection of human rights and serve and to serve as a consultative organ of the organization in these matters. Isn't it hypocritical or ironic that the courage and willingness to call attention to human rights violations wherever they occur should disqualify someone like yourself? This should be a prerequisite, don't you think? I, I absolutely agree. Look at what is, I think, unfortunately, part of the fallout, this very unfortunate decision, is that rather than applying the criteria that you mentioned, which should be the criteria, knowledge of, expertise in, 
capacity to understand and document human rights abuses in, 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 with reference to international human rights standards. Those qualities and characteristics that make someone an expert who should be on the Inter-American Commission, those aren't applied now. The criterion that is most important, unfortunately, is loyalty to the U.S. position on Israel-Palestine, despite the fact that it is a position that is an outlier and that does not actually apply the law to the facts. It's a political position. The United States supports Israel. It's not a legal position. Because to have a legal position, one must study the facts and apply the law. When one does that, one comes to the conclusion that the circumstances on the ground, Israeli governmental oppression of the Palestinian people in a structured, systematic way constitutes the crime of apartheid. Having seen that and said that, yes, that should make an individual even more qualified to serve on the Inter-American Commission. The fact that it doesn't, unfortunately, speaks volumes about how U.S. relations with Israel and Palestine have not only, I would say, poisoned the possibility of peace and justice in, in Palestine, in Israel Palestine, they have also served to undermine the legitimacy of the United States and its candidate, next whoever that may be, to the American Commission. So it's gone well beyond Israel and Palestine. It's, it's affecting other areas that are utterly unrelated to the situation in Israel and Palestine. I mean, next week, uh, um, it's assumed that the United Nations uh, or uh, at the UNSC will pass a resolution on settlements and the State Department, the very same people, the same spokespeople, said that uh, that will be unhelpful. I mean, this is the this is the answer, and we don't know if they actually um, the uh, Biden administration will veto this or or will try to uh, water it down because, as you recall, um, towards the end of the Obama administration, it was. You know, very. Uh, I think for for very uh, one of the very few times that the United States just kind of uh, did not veto. Yeah, yeah, right. No, yeah. This is you know, legally speaking, it's convenient. It's not convenient. It's helpful. Whatever term uh, the State Department chooses to use, there's little doubt as a matter of law that moving civilian population into a militarily occupied territory violates. International humanitarian law, which are the laws of war, the laws of and that's the violation of the for Geneva Convention, as I recall. It, 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 yeah, the Geneva Convention is the humanitarian law, the laws of war, the laws of occupation. The state is not allowed in occupied territory to basically try to change the demographics by by settling on mass its own population. Notwithstanding that fact, Israel has been doing this. The Israeli government has been doing this for decades with hundreds of thousands of settlers. In, in scores of settlements dotted throughout what is the occupied territory. Condemn the continuation of this is simply a matter of applying international law. That should be the default for the State Department, applying international law. But again, there's going to be decision made on, based on what the United States thinks is uh, helpful or, or convenient or whatever term it's going to use but not based on international law, not based on international humanitarian law in particular, and not based on the recognition of Palestinians as citizens and of, uh, 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 in, of the world 
victims of human rights violations with whom one should stand if one actually supports and defends human rights. We're increasingly seeing any criticism of Israel labeled as anti-Semitic in the attempt to delegitimize and shut down opposition to its increasingly brutal discrimination against Palestinians. Uh, we had Kenneth Roth uh, a few weeks ago, um, and you know everyone knows about his uh, fellowship that was uh, rescinded, and then they, they changed their mind at the Harvard Kennedy School. We've had other professors in academia across the country. I mean, do you think this is a concerted strategy to cut esteemed scholars and human rights advocates off at the knees, so to speak, uh, you know, have you been aware of this trend? It clearly is uh, something that is happening. It's something that people talk about. And it's something, unfortunately, that people in academia and in other areas know is a potential problem. Folks know that if they speak out on, in, on behalf of Palestinians, that they run the risk of being quote unquote canceled. Uh, there's another case now, uh, Laura Shiki. We've had her on the show also. And, and I'm sure, so I won't go into detail, but the, the, the pressures and the spurious charges that she's facing, you know, emanate from her defense of the rights of Palestinians. I think there is a strategy, uh, and, it's, and it's a strategy to try to delegitimate by using absurdly broad definition of anti-Semitism. Let me be clear, Jamal. I'm a human rights activist. I abhor anti-Semitism. I abhor, I hate, so to speak, hate speech. I battle against hate speech. I work to protect the rights of the, of the most vulnerable people in the most vulnerable situations, for whatever reason, because of racial prejudice, anti-Semitism, anti-LGBTQ uh, sentiment, anti-Semitism, is important. We, it's an important problem. We have to address it. We don't help ourselves, and this is probably by design, by having a definition of anti-Semitism that is uh, terribly inaccurate and that conflates and that conflates and brings together legitimate criticism of Israeli policies and Judaism. Those are not the same thing. And criticizing Israeli state policies is as legitimate as criticizing the policies of Saudi Arabia. Criticizing the policies of Saudi Arabia. I mean, we criticize our own policies, right? We, we have to. Yeah. I mean, that's part of uh, the democratic uh, process. Uh, talk but, a, bit, a little bit. Sir, Jamal, if I can just finish that thought. Thank you. Sorry to interrupt. No. But the, the, the point here is there is an effort, yes, to characterize criticism of Israel or to say things in certain ways. Oh, the you must be invoking this trope and and then to delegitimate using the tag of anti-Semitism rather than engaging with the substance. We should engage with the substance. I've, been, I've had that charge labeled at me, but I'm not even going to speak that. What I will say is what I've tweeted about, for instance, is the excessive role of money in politics, whether it be APAC, whether it be the, the fossil fuel industry, or the gun weapons and gun lobby, or the railroad lobby, there were powerful lobbying forces that donate hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars to candidates. And then, remarkably, somehow those candidates 
push policies that benefit the precise uh, lobbyists who funded their campaigns. And again, whether it's fossil fuel funding so that climate change continues and there are few limitations, whether it's the gun weapons lobby uh, pressing so that there's no meaningful gun control, or now it's the railroad lobby pressing so that there's no change of the brakes on railroads, which are go back to literally the 19th century, uh, or whether it's it, it, uh, lobbyists, APAC and others pressing so that members of Congress do not include any oversight of Israeli human rights uh, practices in the $4 billion financing that we as taxpayers give to the Israeli government every year. In my conversation with Kenneth Roth, uh, he insinuated uh, in his conversation with the uh, dean of uh, the uh, at Harvard University uh, that uh, uh, the reason they initially denied him the fellowship was because there were some important people to him. And then he insinuated that these were funders and, uh, you know, maybe uh, groups like APAC, etc. In your situation, I mean, what happened? I mean, you had the nomination a long time ago, and what happened in those 24, 48 hours before February 14th? Do you have an inkling, you know, who made that phone call or phone calls that all of a sudden they've decided to pull the plug on you? So it's tough to say, Jalal. Uh, I would have to have been a fly on the wall inside the State Department and possibly the White House to be able to answer definitively. What I can say is there was a decision that took months of review on the merits. And the decision, not my decision, the decision of the State Department was that I was the most qualified candidate. I was nominated. On Monday, as I said, a piece comes out, which has some of my tweets on Israel and Palestine, and then the decision is changed. What I gleaned from my conversations with a high-level official at state and then a higher-level official, in, uh, the ambassador, was that my positions on Israel and Palestine, which again are the positions of Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, the United Nations Special Rapporteur, Ad Hoc, Betzella, okay? That my position or that position set people in state going up the chain. And I think the upset is, is tied as well to the issue of money in our politics. Uh, you know, there, there are support for Israel without conditions, $4 billion a year that the United States taxpayers transfer to the Israeli government pretty much without conditions. That is policy that is, is important to a number of elected officials. And I think, unfortunately, there are elected officials in this country who fear that if they run afoul of the interests of the Israeli government, however extreme it may be, and the current Israeli government is quite extreme, that if they run afoul of the interests of the Israeli government, if they stand with the Palestinian people who are being oppressed and live under apartheid, if they do that, they are fearful, one, that they will lose their support from APAC and other uh, uh, lobbying bodies that support close relationship with Israel, and or that they will be primaried within their own pri within their own party uh, before they even get to a general election. And I think, look, the bigger issue here, the bigger issue here is the outsized and excessive role of money 
in our politics. I think we need to talk about that. And I think we have to be able to talk about that, whether we're talking about APAC or again, or the fossil fuel industry or the gun lobby and or any other lobby, any other area where money buys influence. That's not the way it should be in a democracy. We need to call that out. And we need to be able to call that out without having spurious charges uh, labeled that, that I won't even say the word because I don't want to make the association. But uh, you, you take my point. Talk a little uh, about uh, going forward and about uh, the University Network for Human Rights that you co-founded and are uh, the executive director of. So, uh, thanks for the question. So, going forward, you know, look at and this is important. You know, I am, am fortunate. I've been in this line of work for years. I will not be a, uh, a nominee to the commission. I will live with that personally. I still have teaching affiliations with universities. And I still run uh, my non-governmental organization. Uh, I should note, it's worth noting that there are others who are much more in a situation of much greater vulnerability should they speak out on Palestine than I am. So let me just make that clear. Uh, but our role, the University Network for Human Rights, what we do, we work around the country. Uh, we work with universities. We're based uh, on the campus area of Wesleyan University in Connecticut. I teach at Wesleyan. I also teach at Yale. Uh, and we engage students from those schools and from other colleges in the area in human rights practice. So we train students to work on social justice through human rights uh, in, our, in our base at, at Wesleyan. But we also do this at other universities. And we're, we're setting up programs in Europe uh, where we work with a network of 30 universities in Latin America. So Again, it's a network of groups within the universities that train students across disciplines to do human rights work, to stand with victims, to apply international standards of human rights in context, community-based, and focusing on social justice through human rights. So thank you for the chance to talk about what the University Network does, www.humanrightsnetwork.org, if you're interested in finding about, uh, out more. James Cavallaro, uh, we wish you the best of luck, and we, I commend you for your courage, really, and thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Thank you for having me. I appreciate, I appreciate the opportunity. That's the voice in the face of Dr. James Cavallaro, who was um, basically vetted and appointed by the State Department and the Biden administration to serve on the Inter-American Commission for Human Rights, a very high-level position, fully vetted. Jamal, I, I'm kind of speechless. I, Listen, I, just he, he is a leader in human rights. He served in that capacity before. I mean, his specialty. And by the way, this remember, this has nothing to do with the Middle East. His position is <laughs> for what? His Central and South America. Exactly. His, his position for the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. It's not exactly. for, for the Middle East or the MENA region or something like this. And, uh, you know, he is a, uh, the executive, he's the co-founder, executive director of the University Network for Human Rights. He teaches courses on human rights law and practice at Wesleyan University, Yale Law School, UCLA Law School, and prior to this, he was at Stanford. I mean, he's the creme it, de la creme in this field. No, and he's... 
and yet because the Hasbara machine and and the APEC machine started to work, he basically they dropped the nomination on him. Yeah, but listen, we need to put this in the larger context, Jamal, obviously, of what's going on right now. And, uh, you know, we don't have the time to go over it in detail with the show today. But this is occurring in the context when when the apartheid regime is involved in the most egregious attacks on human rights with within the apartheid regime, with all the judicial uh, attacks on the judicial system that they have there, the many people are calling what's happening in the apartheid uh, regime right now kind of a slide into fascism. And the Biden administration in this context, despite world condemnation, has refused to criticize or have a critical analysis about what the apartheid regime is doing right now in Israel. And so we have that as the larger context. We have an academic with an impeccable record of human rights work throughout his career, teaching at all the you know, incredible institutions on the East Coast and the West Coast, who simply was talking about human rights no different than any other human rights organization. And the Biden administration caving in, Jamal, caving in to the Hasbaristas. I think this portends very poorly for the Biden administration. It, it really does. I mean, this is among the worst of the decisions that they've taken in a very long time when it comes to these human rights issues. But we can't forget, uh, you know, the Biden administration is not just dropping the ball. They're, they're basically giving the apartheid regime cover. We'll talk about this next time, Jamal, but Anthony Blinken is trying to get the Palestinians to withdraw the United Nations, you know, kind of discussion and vote on the illegality of the colonial settlements. And they want the Palestinians to drop their cause in the United Nations. So you can see this is part of a pattern and a practice of the Biden administration giving the apartheid regime yet another pass. Only just another pass. They are on the wrong side of history and we've seen what happened during apartheid South Africa, and the United States was late showing up to the party, right? right. I mean, I mean, it's kind of like embarrassing when the entire world were, you know, was standing uh, united against apartheid in South Africa, right? And then, you know, and then we started having celebrities in this country speaking against it and so forth like this. And then finally, finally, the United States joins the party. And I feel this is happening all over yeah. again, except it has been a long, long, long stretch. And, and, and we're going to find ourselves, and I'm talking here as American citizens, to be uh, isolated and being the last country in the world to recognize, even though the population, and as uh, James Cavallaro said, his students were stunned by this. Uh, you know, those are law students when when they found out they were stunned by this decision and trying to understand what was going on. So you have a whole new generation. That's right. And you have, we should speak about that, and we have young people who understand what's going on with human rights violations by Israel and its apartheid practices. But then... The administration or administration after administration, I have to say, they just either choose to bury their heads in the sand or or whitewash these crimes. And that's well look sad. look at but look at it this way, Jamal. How many Palestinians 
have died just this year alone, this calendar year? How many Palestinian homes have been demolished? How many illegal settlements continue to be built? And you have an administration that is supporting this kind of grotesque abuse of human rights and basically trying to undermine human rights work uh, in Palestine right now. How can the United States be taken seriously anywhere else in the world with Ukraine, uh, you know, and other places where they're screaming at the top of their lungs that people have the right to defend, defend themselves. themselves against occupation. They want to they, summarize the, the position of the State Department. It's easy. In one word. It's easy. In one word. No, no. In one word, they have been saying both about the settlers taking over now. Israel has approved more settlements to be taken over and... and, and, and Annexed. And annexed and usurped and so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their word was unhelpful. And for the United... <laughs> for, for the Palestinians to dare to go to the UNSC, uh, they said this action is also unhelpful. Well, it seems like any time Palestinians use international law and advocate on behalf of themselves and their, their dignity and their rights, their human rights, the United States finds it unhelpful. It appears, Jamal, that the only thing that the United States finds helpful is when the Palestinians accept being occupied and being slaves to apartheid. I have breaking news for Antony Blinken and the, and the Biden administration and any future administration. Palestinians will never accept being slaves to apartheid, will never accept being oppressed. So it's time for the United States, it's time for Blinken and Biden and, and the Department of State to be on the right side of history. Now, that's just the Cavallaro story, Jamal. What about supporting an apartheid state that has a surveillance system that is undermining democracy, not only at home in its own apartheid state, but undermining democracies throughout well, the world. Let's summarize this uh, to it's, our viewers and listeners. So uh, as you mentioned earlier, a team of Israeli contractors who claim to have manipulated more than 30 elections around the world using hacking, sabotage, and automated disinformation on social media has been exposed in a new investigation by The Guardian, and you've mentioned the story, you know, I mean, we know about the story by reading The Guardian, but it has not been picked up, let's say, on CNN and so no, forth. No, it hasn't. Team Jorge, that's, the, that's what they call it. This is their guys. Team Jorge unit exposed by an undercover investigation. And basically, this group uh, has been selling um, hacking services and access to vast army of fake social media profiles, disinformation uh, campaigns across the world. And its mastermind is an Israeli. His name is uh, Tal Hanan, who uses Hori and other covert names. Uh, said he claimed that he was involved in covert involvement of 33 presidential elections across the globe. And these, this is his words uh, from uh, that were recorded. Uh, we are now involved in one election in Africa, he's bragging about that. We have a team in Greece and a team in the Emirates. Uh, you follow the leads. Uh, we have completed 33 presidential level campaigns, 27 of which were successful. And uh, he then he claims to be involved, pay attention to this, to two major projects in the U.S. 
Of course, Jamal. And and we 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 have been following like the 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 this story around the edges, you know, for for many years now in terms of the Israeli hackers being involved in the U.S. Uh, election disinformation campaign during the two during the Trump you know Trump elections. You know, we've been talking about Israeli spyware being used to undermine uh, democratic regimes throughout the world. This is yet another example of how the apartheid state leverages state power and hacking to undermine democratic regimes all over the world. And let me ask you a question, Jamal, after this story broke. Did you hear anything from our State Department, from our CIA, from our FBI, anywhere? Is there any anything that's being picked up about this? They're, they're getting away with these undermining tactics, not just internationally, but here in the United States, too. Well, look how, how long has NSO, you're familiar with, we're familiar with that story, we talked about it. And the Pegasus had, people, and the Pegasus, Pegasus. And we had experts who actually exposed that they've been spying on Americans uh, and hacking iPhones, etc., for I don't know how many months before uh, the State Department uh, stepped in. Now they put them on the blacklist. But then, shortly afterwards, we have our own members of Congress and Senate lobbying to remove them. Of, That's right. They said, "Oh, they cleaned up their act. Don't worry about." It. Imagine, like you have an, a foreign uh, uh, organization. Uh, most of its employees and founders are uh, were members or still are members of the Israeli Mossad, etc. Or you know, and they've been uh, selling the software and placing the software everywhere, and then and now they want them to bring them back to the United States, and other uh, authoritarian regimes have been using their software, like in the Emirates and and so the Saudis. Uh, you know, I mean, this is. It, this is connected. This 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 thing here, you could see the uh, sadly the long reach of of apartheid state Israel on a global level when it comes to espionage, and not not to mention, of course, uh, Jonathan Pollard, who right. has been freed, you know, for was probably the worst spying case in the history. Of the United States, and he was and was let go, and he was let go, and he is uh, honored in Israel. He was let go, and he walks like a a leader. Like, no, like a pop star. He's a rock yeah. star. Yeah, no, but but I think you know this is part of the larger global reach of the apartheid state, as you said, Jamal. And when you're reading all of these really disturbing op eds. You know, and I'm going to go to the obvious one by uh, Thomas Friedman, who is lamenting the fact that the apartheid state could be losing its economic edge if it continues in this direction. But the economic edge of the apartheid state is based on surveillance. It's based on hacking. It's based on trying to make money off of propping up these rogue regimes and undermining democracies throughout the world. Is this the kind of democracy the United States wants to support? Well, the, que the question, aside from this, uh, let's go back and revisit the reception Israel received at the World Cup. Yes. Okay. Well, and, it's and, not and, the World Cup, but it's the African... Oh, the World Cup. Yeah, or, go yeah. ahead. And, and that, that is basically... Right, right. Uh, this is an expose 
to the difference between what government actions and people across the globe who understand and reject it. And this actually leads to our next story, which is right, about right. the Israeli delegation expelled from the African Union. You know, people say, well, number one, the delegation is an observer, just like Palestine, wherever, and they muscled their way. They weren't initially, they muscled their way, and I would say also they bribed their way, because sadly there are some African countries who need a lot of help, and Israel, st- Israel steps in and gives them weapons, and I don't know what, and money, and, and so forth. So they muscled their way, and they bought their way to be part of the uh, observer team, and this is uh, the um, this is the most recent summit, uh, the African Union summit in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. Now they got kicked out. So now they're saying, "Oh, you know, we got kicked out because this, there was like a planned coup against against <laughs> us to get us out by." And then they named the countries, and it's kind of funny to listen who they named the two countries: Algeria. Right. And South, South Africa. Africa, right, right. Here right. you have, yes, and they're not denying it. Why? Algeria has suffered under settler colonialism for almost 180 years and recognizes a settler colonial when they see one. And South Africa, which suffered under apartheid, also recognizes an apartheid regime when they see one. So both of when those countries, it, yeah. yeah, both these countries basically lobbied or passed a motion. I don't know the procedure, and in, they were basically escorted the delegation, the apartheid uh, delegation, which we should call it what it is, was escorted outside, and now they're all upset, you know, about it. They want to practice. Not to mention, if even if you read in the Israeli media, I have some actually guests who have been here, and they pointed out. I mean, here is the this government which represents racism, xenophobia, you name it. They were the ones also throwing African migrants out of their country, out of not out only of out the, of their country. They're putting them in, in jail, in, in camps. And, right. and 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 all the discrimination and these these are Israelis these are honest Israelis who are saying I mean of course why should we be accepted as a colonial regime as as a regime that uh, practices apartheid and racism in in we have no business to being there being there and that's what happened I I think it's such an amazing story Jamal because and by the way the video of the security guards kind of escorting the Israeli ambassador or representative out is is a great video and i encourage our listeners to to kind of look at it if they can find it they're all up in arms they want to they want to they they want to crush uh uh human rights in the apartheid states against against in the part in the apartheid state against palestinians they want to be on the international stage wreaking havoc, undermining democracies with their spyware and their hacking. And they're all surprised and they want to bomb Syria and bomb Iran and do all these things. And they're so surprised that the international community They uh, want to march in the streets of Jerusalem chanting death to Arabs and may may their villages burn and we want Nakba now. And they want everybody to hug them and say this is we, the, we love the, the most democratic state in, in the Middle East. And that's the the maddening thing about our government right here is burying the heads in the sand. You know, 
President Biden, Secretary Blinken, every U.S. official, they know what's going on on the ground. Of course they do. They know. They, they, you know but they choose to look the other way or bury their heads in the sand. But I don't believe they're burying their heads and Jamal. that's and I, that I believe, But I believe it's the political calculation that Biden, Blinken, and the U.S. Department of State still see value in supporting a racist apartheid regime. They well, still see I want to go back and say part of Biden's or not part of one of the major promises that or pledges that Biden made is to have a policy based on human rights. Well, except with the Palestinian exception. I mean, I mean that's with the just, just a reminder exception. they should just basically look at themselves in the mirror and see if they are implementing a policy based on human rights or not. That's it. Obviously not. So uh, the last should... quick story, just uh, because yeah, yeah. we're running out of time, is again, and here you have Syria suffering from the aftermath of two devastating earthquakes and, of course, uh, the uh, years of uh, 12, 12 years of sanctions. And Israel, again, this is the hypocrisy on the international arena. Oh, we want to send a team to Turkey. Oh, we want to help. We are blah, blah, blah. And then they turn around and bomb a residential building in Damascus. In the, you mentioned in the heart of Damascus. Dead, but actually the number is over 15 people who were killed. This is a residential building in the heart of Damascus as the Syrians are just basically... Not basically, even they're just digging the dead from the below beneath but, the rubble. But, but Jamal, did we hear any condemnation from the United States about uh, breaching the integrity of uh, of the airspace of a uh, of another country like that? Did no, we hear anything? No, that's why. No, we heard we nothing. Go, Israel gets a pass. Yeah, I, I'm ready to say something else beside a pass. I think this is part of a calculated. Uh, collaboration with the apartheid state to do some dirty work in the region, Jamal. I really believe that. We we don't have time to talk about it today, but things are going to get worse in Iran. Things are going to get worse in Syria. Things are going to get worse in Palestine and in Lebanon. And the apartheid state is going to facilitate that in a very, very significant way. But we'll we'll have to leave that to the next show. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest shows, and we'll talk to you next week. We'll see you next week.